Hello, I'm Josiah Ober, a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, as well as a professor of political science and classics at Stanford. And I'm also the faculty director of the Stanford Civics Initiative. I'd like to welcome you to the latest installation of the Hoover Book Club, where we bring Hoover fellows and friends together to discuss our latest writings. And today, I'm joined by my friend and collaborator, Brooke Manville. Brooke is the principal of a consultancy focused on strategy, organizational development, and executive leadership. Brooke has a special expertise in knowledge, strategy, and management, organizational learning, and leadership development. He also serves as an executive coach for nonprofit um, and for-profit leaders. Brooke and I are perhaps most importantly, um, at least for today's purpose, um, the co-authors of a new book, The Civic Bargain, How Democracy Survives. So Brooke, welcome to the Hoover Book Club. Thank you, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here. And, you know, we're often asked, by friends when they hear we're writing a book together. Why did you guys decide to write this book? And what really is the headline? So um, what do you tell them, Brooke, when yeah, you get that question? Well, I usually give them a little background. Uh, you and I will remember that we were together at the National Geographic Society several years ago. Uh, it's when the tempo of uh, pessimism about our democracy was was beginning to rise. Uh, we had a number of people in the audience who were quite anxious about the question, including, as you recall, a Supreme Court justice. And uh, as we made our presentations, uh, which were you know relatively superficial looking back at the time, uh, but nonetheless, we had a lot of interesting questions. And it was clear that our fellow citizens, uh, those in the room and beyond were beginning to be very anxious about that. Uh, people were seeing the growing polarization uh, of our politics, the gridlock, that kind of thing. And then there was a flurry of books that were starting to come out, which is all about, you know, democracy dying, it's, it's all over, get ready for authoritarianism, and so on. And we looked at each other and 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 said, you know, that doesn't necessarily hold true. Uh, you had the interesting insight at the time that, uh, gee, you know, maybe um, instead of thinking about uh, democracy dying, we need to think about what makes it work. And we sort of riffed on that a little bit before the audience. And that later segued into kind of our approach to this book. We wanted to look back at history and instead of saying, you know, why did uh, Rome fall or, or that, you know, Rome lasted a long time. Ancient Athens lasted a long time. We've got two modern democracies that have endured for hundreds of years, the British parliamentary system and, of course, our own constitutional system, as beleaguered as it may be. And we said, what can we learn looking back at history uh, about how democracies actually endure? What what keeps them resilient? How do they survive? And then we started some historical research, uh, which took us several years, frankly. Um, but through it all, we, we, we were motivated by this sense that what we needed to do was get to some fundamental questions. You know, in my consulting work, uh, it's always, uh, what's the real problem we're trying to solve? And how do you get to sort of essential principles or fundamentals 
to, to wipe the slate clean, think creatively. And that's really what we, we started to do. Yeah, I remember um, uh, when we first started having these conversations, you and I both have a background in ancient history, and we'd both done a lot of work on the history of ancient Athens. And uh, one of the issues that obviously um, comes up then uh, is, well, not why does this not last forever, but why did it work at all? Um, uh, and so we were sort of prompted to think that way. Um, uh, and we knew enough about the Roman case that we felt, well, we could probably get into that. But then, of course, it did take us a while um, to become sufficiently expert in um, especially the British case as well as um, uh, the U.S. case. But what really did uh, come through to us um, all along is that there are some real continuities. There are some fundamentals um, uh, that allow self-government by citizens to work over time to get through both the speed bumps and the really serious crises um, that every political system runs into. And it really was those fundamentals that uh, when we began to feel that they were, you know, becoming evident to us um, that we, I think, really felt we had a book, uh, had something something really to say. Yeah. Well, you know, you touched on a couple of things that I'd love to just underscore. Um, you know, again, this idea of fundamentals, because we discovered, uh, you know, at first as we were reading uh, the the material about these, these uh, cases of, of, of well-known democracies, uh, you know, we knew Athens, we sort of knew Rome, um, but you know, people naturally said, well, what do these have to do with each other? I mean, the parliamentary system is so different. And what is America going to learn from the Athenians other than, you know, mob violence kills people like Socrates? And, and you know, we had to sort of, you know, look beyond it. And we said, well, you know, of course, there are differences in institutions. There's differences, of course, in context. But there are some fundamental things that are that are kind of the same. And you touched on what really became the one of the core thoughts in our book, which is if you really strip away what democracy is about, um, it's it's the self-governance of citizens. Now, they might do that in lots of different ways. Um, but at, at the end of the day, it is uh, that, that that citizens are in charge of themselves. And it was, I think, thanks to you uh, from some of your earlier thinking that we developed this this very um, accessible phrase. You know, it's it's living and making decisions without a boss. Uh, democracy basically is without a boss, and I think that's very important because not only is that an accessible comment, but a lot of the confusion and thus a lot of the sort of stress in public debate about quote saving democracy is people have so many different ideas about what democracy is. Uh, and particularly, for example, there's a, there's, there's a common sort of assumption that democracy is the same as liberalism. Uh, you've written about that, um, and that democracy can't be equated between a representative government and a so-called direct government. But I, I think you should say a little bit about that and why, why no boss um, uh, is, is so important to, to getting this kind of inquiry going. Yeah, so this was one of the things that really came out um, for, I think, both of us uh, in doing the historical work is that when you really 
get to the essence um, of what it is to have a democracy, the rejection of um, an individual or a small gang, a junta running things. It is that refusal uh, to be run by a boss, whether it's a gang boss or an individual boss, is what is common um, to each of our four cases. Um, uh, and we begin to realize that that really is the essence of democracy. Um, now, of course, uh, if you're going to have a society that's workable, especially a society that um, is in rivalry with other um, boss-run states, then you're going to have to have system of organization. And that means not having a boss requires that we're each other's boss. Anarchy in a full sense really isn't an option um, in any kind of competitive um, environment. And so being our own boss, um, being uh, uh, our collective boss of one another um, uh, is really um, what democracy is about. And that becomes then a real challenge. Um, how do we govern ourselves, um, no boss but one another, um, without simply turning um, into something like majority tyranny um, or other of the well-known pathologies um, that uh, democracy can fall into. Well, of course, the political science literature, you know, certainly is is very full of examples and gives rich, you know, discussion of this kind of thing. So I think we're in good company with, with that premise. But, you know, when I talk to some of the audiences that I've been discussing the book with, uh, I often bring to bear more everyday experience. Most people who work in business or some kind of an organization, you know, a church group or, a, you know, a school or whatnot, have faced some kind of um, uh, project where, you know, a lot of people have to be organized together, you know, develop a picnic, develop a science fair, develop, you know, an outing for, for the, for, for this department. And people start to realize very quickly, the easiest way to do it is to have somebody in charge and then people follow. Um, but people often in those situations somewhat idealistically say, oh, let's do this more democratically. And, you know, more often than not, it turns into a mess. It's very hard to actually make that work, particularly when the organization gets bigger. And so people understand sort of intuitively that, you know, organizing things for yourselves with nobody in charge is hard. But if you believe in it, then you've got to do some things that are difficult. And I think that was another early aha of our research uh, kind of, you know, it was obvious, but it's not often talked about. Democracy is very hard. It is messy. It is not the sort of default organization through history that has succeeded. And appreciating that difficulty, I think, is another part of sort of framing this question really uh, in a way that people can understand and is meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, collective action um, is a challenge, um, and democracy needs to come up with a, an answer to those challenges. One of the things about living without a boss um, uh, is that uh, people require or demand or, or expect um, freedom. 
uh, and they expect a set of basic rights that maintain them as you know free individuals. Um, so rights are always part of um, a democratic story. And yet what I think that once again seemed to be very clear to us um, as we were doing this research is that all rights come with duties. Um, there isn't any right without a corresponding responsibility. And if we multiply rights indefinitely, um, if we're not careful um, about creating new rights, we end up um, putting more duties uh, on ourselves than we're willing to take on. And at that point, the whole thing can fall apart. So yeah. this is why the, the no boss is just, uh, uh, it, it's, it's where you start. But if you add too much into that um, in terms of uh, uh, rights without uh, corresponding duties, um, you get into trouble very quickly. Yeah. And, you know, again, back to sort of the everyday life. I mean, one of the sort of um, axiomatic cries that people in this country say is, oh, it's a free country. You know, I can park my car here if I want to, or it's a free country. I can have as many guns as I want. It's a free country. I can tell my kid whether or not he or she should go to school and and so far, so far, so forth. Um, the problem is, is that that kind of rhetoric, although it's very empowering, does lack that 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 rejoinder historically that when you have rights, you have some duties, you have some duties to each other. And, you know, many of the antagonisms in our politics has to do with what is a right that is natural or what is my right as a particular citizen in a particular state versus uh, what I'm supposed to do with that. And I think another thing that has sort of informed uh, our book, uh, which we'll get into more, is that, you know, this question of liberalism and whatnot, much, much of modern uh, democracy is, has been defined around, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the impositions of the government upon my life. Um, that, that, you know, running away from, from the government and keeping the government small and keeping the government at arm's length is a lot of how democracy uh, is, is defined. But if you go back in history, as we did, you realize that 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 notion about the government, you know, had its roots much more in a world where the citizens were the government, and that there is still a legacy of that notion of obligations as part of the deal of not having a boss. And again, I think that has been forgotten. Uh, and I think uh, one of the things our our book, I would hope, would do would do, remind people that again, if you care about history, there are some lessons that you can't just think about what are your freedoms, but also what are your responsibilities to make the community of citizens work? Yeah, um, absolutely. So when we started out, we thought, all right, the no boss thing is where, we, where we're where we going to ground ourselves. That's our, going to be our definition of democracy. But we began to see that there were other essential conditions um, that were necessary if a group of citizens were going to rule themselves uh, without a boss. So we start out uh, recognizing that unless the people or the citizenry can maintain basic security, you know, against external threats, but also against um, uh, internal uh, violence, um, and can maintain basic welfare, so 
we have um, uh, a life that is at least decent um, so that we're not impoverished. Um, uh, if we can't maintain security and welfare, um, uh, then it's not going to work. Um, we're going to absolutely have to have that. Um, uh, well, if you've got a boss, the boss may be able to maintain security and welfare um, uh, without having to really much worry about who's involved with this because the boss or the minions of the boss are doing the work. But when we um, uh, move to a self-government, we're going to have to worry about who are the citizens, um, uh, who who are we? Um, uh, and then, as we were saying, you know, what really are the duties of the citizens? So both the definitional question, who is the citizen body? Um, uh, and then what do we expect of one another um, as citizens are going to be um, absolutely um, essential. If we don't do those things, we don't maintain um, basic security and welfare and uh, know who we are, um, it's not, it's not going to work. Yeah, that, I mean, I think this is another very interesting um, sort of lens on current debate and some of its um, missing pieces, if I may. So, uh, you know, when people talk about democracy and 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 want to talk about saving it, uh, if they're not trying to save what some people would call liberalism, they're trying to save particular institutions. You know, we need to change the the Supreme Court, or we need to expand the Senate, or we need to end the filibuster. And, and 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 I think that when we think about fundamentals, uh, institutions are obviously a very important part of the story. And you find them, though they are different, you know, in Athens, in Rome, uh, in in the British parliamentary system, uh, you can see some some parallels. But the things that you mentioned are kind of, I would say, often forgotten or taken for granted prologues. One is this whole notion of, you know, no boss. Uh, I mean, our country was founded in defiance of ever letting, you know, another King George be in charge. Um, but secondly, that you touched on, there has to be a level of of, of basic security and 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 some minimal welfare uh, that's at least better than having it under a boss. Um, and then you have to have clarity about who who is who is the citizens. Um, and it's interesting if you look at one of the contemporary uh, arenas of, of of acrimony and debate, it's just about those things. We have you know millions of people moving around the world now trying to escape tyranny or anarchy. And where do they come? They come to places where there's the chance of some level of security. If you're from Guatemala or Nicaragua, you are delighted at at you know the the relative safety of the streets of of, of America. Um, you know you 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 hope for some chance to at least make a business based upon you know the the rule of law and and some degree of of relatively uniform police protection uh, and economic, you know, support and so on and so forth. And so not surprisingly, people are coming to a place where it works and people say in, here in this country, oh, you know, it's disastrous, you know, our police is out of control or so. But on a relative basis, it still works pretty well compared to the rest of the world coming from a boss or, or, a, or an anarchy background. Now that then generates uh, problems with the second, uh, or the I guess it was our third uh, condition about citizenship. S suddenly you have more and more people here. They want to be part of the story. 
after they're here for a while, they say, well, gee, you know, I ought to be able to vote. I ought to be able to get social security. You know, I've been doing my work. And then there's all this, you know, stress and anger about, you know, who are these people? Why do they belong? Should they belong? No, they don't belong and so on. And of course, through history, the notion of outsiders coming into um, democratically governed but prosperous organizations or, or states uh, is an old one. Uh, and that then generates this problem of scale. You know, you get more and more people here. And if you're going to make them part of the, the bargain, you know, we use this word, the civic bargain, the, the, the agreement of how as citizens we will govern ourselves, it starts to get more and more complicated. If you don't want to make them part of the bargain, then you have this, these barriers in society, which can be, you know, very negative. Uh, and they can also be positive if you figure out how to work in a more, um, call it multicultural kind of way. So I think those conditions, uh, again, people see them as separate political debates. They're root and branch part of, of any democracy, and it's why we included them as part of our uh, list of seven essential conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so once we've decided who the citizenry is at any given moment, and of course that changes, as we saw in each of our cases, um, the answer to who are the citizens um, does change over time. Um, certainly it's changed dramatically um, uh, in the United States um, since the beginning. Um, uh, but uh, the key thing is that once we've decided that, um, uh, uh, is that we've got to create some institutions, um, as you were saying, um, there are various kinds of institutions that uh, will work um, uh, in order to have self-government, but they all come down to this core requirement of creating a bargain um, among the citizens. So this really was the big aha of our book, um, uh, is that, Every democracy is based on bargaining among the citizens, um, hard bargaining, um, difficult bargaining, but negotiation, compromise um, uh, that allow us as a citizenry to go on together and to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish as individuals, but also to accomplish things that we need to accomplish together to achieve the public good. So it was that notion that if you can't bargain with your fellow citizens, if you refuse to make a compromise um, uh, that will gain all of us more than we would have if we were not willing to engage in a bargain um, that seemed to be really the, the, the core of what makes democracies work. Yeah. And, you know, bargaining is, a, is a, it's a it's a multifaceted word and it's worth unpacking a little bit because I think a lot of what's interesting about our book is is to bring out some of these complementary dimensions to it. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, it's you know, we we often use it. We people in in everyday life uh, as kind of some kind of negotiation. Uh, you know, you do this, I do this. I'm going to pay half. Okay, I'll take half. Whatever. And people are familiar with that. But when you get back to no boss uh, except each other, then the immediate imperative becomes some kind of bargain. You know, like okay, you know, if I'm not going to be in charge any more than you are, 
we're going to have to kind of find some middle ground about how we're going to make decisions when, you know, the enemy is attacking us. So we're going to have to make some, find some middle ground or agreeable uh, way to, to deal with your religious beliefs, which by the way, happen to be different than mine. Uh, you know, if the king t- says everybody's going to be a Catholic, that's that's one thing, but we don't have a king telling us that. So we have to learn to negotiate with one another because that comes along with, 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 with no boss. The second dimension of it, which is very interesting, is that the whole notion of democracy as a bargain is traceable uh, through history back to bargaining that kind of was a precursor to full democracy. If you look back at um, the Athenian case or the Roman case or the British case, all the cases, there were sort of intermediate, call it deals or understandings that were were created that started to give people who had been, you know, pure subjects, if you like, of a king or a tyrant, uh, a little bit more rights. I mean, the British case is interesting. You know, the the parliamentary sovereignty, which is now in place, evolved over a very long time. But if you look back way before kind of the turning point of that in the in the uh, in the seventeenth century, um, you know, the king was granting certain protections to to subjects. Uh, he was insisting that the nobles. Um, you know, tap into people uh, from their realms to uh, agree about the taxes that were being charged. You know, it it was a decision that was made, you know, we're not going to just kill people unless they give us money. We're going to give them some protection. Uh, They're not full democratic citizens. They didn't have that word, but we're going to give them some limited protection in exchange for uh, essentially being better subjects. Uh, and in Britain, the Magna Carta is a, a famous example of this, that 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 the king said, look, if you will support my campaigns in France, um, we're going to start to put in some basic rights about trial by jury and protections and that kind of thing. And you can look at Athens, you can look at Rome, and of course, even in our, our country, before we had our constitution, which was one formal version of a civic bargain in this country, uh, there was this essentially failed effort to make a bargain called the Articles of Confederation. But there was still an attempt to, you know, find some middle ground between states' rights and central rights. It didn't quite, they didn't quite get it right, but it worked a little bit for a while. But again, by learning through the bargaining process in a pre-democratic world, uh, this idea of democracy as essentially an agreement of, uh, amongst more and more equal, eventually equal citizens, you know, was essentially the evolutionary process that led to full democracy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we often think um, in our American case um, that um, our democracy comes out, comes about because of a revolution. And that's true. Of course, there is a revolution, uh, but that revolution was preceded by a series of bargains, local bargains, um, uh, among people in each of the various states or the colonies, which become uh, the states of the United States. Um, uh, These were um, really classrooms uh, uh, in which uh, the local residents learned to make agreements with themselves, learned to do the kind of things that they needed to govern themselves 
Uh, so that when it came to the revolutionary moment of saying, that's it, no boss, no king, we're going to run ourselves, um, uh, we were um, in a much better situation. Without that evolutionary development, um, once again, for each of our cases, the revolutionary moment that creates the possibility of a true civic bargain between citizens um, just wouldn't be there. You know, I would add to that uh, everything you said, of course, I agree with, but I would add to it that the learning how to bargain had to come after the revolution as well. Uh, you know, I, I, I often talk about the sequence of the American Revolution, which we, we celebrate on the 4th of July, as kind of like, you know, the, the dog that was chasing the car. I mean, you know, we finally beat the British, but then there was this huge pregnant pause. You know, now what are we going to do? How are we going to get ourselves together so we can take care of ourselves, defend ourselves, um, deal with questions about things like slavery, deal with questions about things like paying taxes, deal with questions, you know, that are standing in the way of us, you know, hanging together. Uh, and that was really hard. Um, you know, so there, so in many cases, I think the narratives in history about you know democratic revolution tend to overemphasize the glory of the battlements and the and you know bunker hill and all that and underemphasize the hard work of people negotiating and haggling and trying to figure out what's the best deal we can work out with each other in places like philadelphia hall uh, when the constitution was developed no absolutely uh, and uh, i think this is really one of the big problems that we run into today um, uh, is that people look back at the Constitution um, and they want to either say, oh, this was just a perfect moment um, uh, that uh, we had founders who were wise, who were thoughtful, who were well-educated, which is true. Um, uh, but uh, they, because they were like that, um, because they were wise and thoughtful and well-educated, they created something perfect. They created a constitution that was absolutely ideal. Then others looking at this, um, thinking, well, but it instantiates or at least allows for slavery. Um, uh, this was um, uh, not just imperfect, um, uh, but uh, uh, a hypocritical mess. Um, uh, and both of those are really wrong. Um, uh, the, the Constitution was recognized at the time um, as a bargain, as an imperfect bargain, because all bargains are imperfect from the point of view of any conception of ideal justice. Um, my idea of ideal justice or someone else's, um, uh, because it was necessarily a bargain between people who had different interests and different preferences. You know, the American Constitution, just like the civic bargain that created the Athenian democracy or the Roman Republic, um, ultimately um, British parliamentarianism, that bargain um, was the best bargain that was available um, on the table given the multiple interests um, uh, that were involved. And it was a bargain that was recognized um, as imperfect at the time um, and as um, something that was going to have to be changed and, and adjusted um, uh, over time. 
Um, so that either setting it up as a kind of ideal um, that is flawless or as a hypocritical mess is simply failing to understand the nature of the kind of bargain that is necessary um, to have and keep a democracy. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'd love to just kind of drill down a little bit further on that, because I think there's some good news as well as some bad news. The bad news, of course, is that because of, I think, social media and other factors uh, that have been driving the extremism in, in our politics, uh, we've lost sight that there is something other than, you know, all the way to the left or all the way to the right. Um but in fact, America was born uh, around through compromise, and it was imperfect. And I think part of the American character, dare I, dare I opine on such a thing, is historically that you know we are pragmatic people. We understand that you know the perfect outcome is usually um, impossible uh, if one is going to respect one's fellow citizens, and even if one's going to just plain get something done. And I think that uh, the good news is it is is I think it's in our character to understand that. I mean, the recent budget deal, if you remember that earlier in the summer, where um, you know the the Republican Speaker of the House and Joe Biden, you know, didn't want to negotiate, didn't want to negotiate, but then the last minute, you know, they they made a deal, not perfect, everybody acknowledges, but they made a deal that you know saved the credit rating, did cut some stent, uh, spending, but also preserved some very important programs for the for the uh, democratic side of the of the political debate and you know people were waiting for that i mean the polls before that deal said that 70% of americans wanted the the congress people and and the president to negotiate and come up with with something practical that was doable so i think it's in our character um i also note uh the other day i don't know if any of you watched the uh republican debate but one of the persons that most of the pundits uh, said was was the most impressive in the debate was Nikki Haley, and it was really because of one thing she said. There was there was a lot of you know chest thumping about abortion uh, up on the stage, but she's the one who said, "Look, I am pro life, but there just aren't sixty votes for a ban on abortion in the Senate, and we have to get real. and And the only way we're going to get real." is if we start to recognize what is achievable and we're going to have to find some less than perfect solution. And, you know, people were 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 bowled over because it was such an unusual grown-up kind of thing to say. But I do think it is in our nation's character to find best next available for the greater common good solutions. And I think a lot of what our civic bargain is about is getting back to that kind of mindset. Yeah, when you actually think about um, what uh, the founders did in creating the Constitution, uh, is they created um, a method, a system that required bargaining, um, required bargaining between the branches of government, required bargaining between the different interests that are now represented by political parties. Um, uh, and uh, they thought that um, compromise or bargaining is a sellout um, or somehow is um, uh, violating the spirit um, of uh 
what the country is about is, is absolutely false. Um, the spirit of the country, as you say, our character, um, uh, and our character as formed by our institutions, um, uh, really ought to be um, uh, one that recognizes bargaining um, as a necessary and good part in, of, uh, uh, of how we govern ourselves in a, in a democratic republic. You know, the uh, podcaster who I listen to often, Andrew Sullivan, uh, said it very eloquently the other day. He said, I've always thought that bargaining is part of our national DNA because the design of the Constitution distributed power. As soon as you have distributed power, there's no choice except to bargain. And uh, and again, I think we have to get back to that. But I want to I want to come back to bargaining because there are two other aspects of what we think is critical. Um, there are two more, and there's actually a third. Uh, but you know, I'll call it the conditions that make bargaining work, and not only work short term, but long term. Uh, and you know, sometimes these are called norms or whatnot. But you know, people often think bargain is well. Just let me see the written conditions. Let me see the written constitution or the written contract. But there's a softer uh, behavioral side, which is equally as important, and we think are part of the fundamentals. I, you know, I, I think you should say a little bit more about that because it's such an important part of our story. Well, yeah, I mean. Both of us, uh, uh, Brooke and I, um, began um, uh, studying ancient Greece, and so uh, uh, we tend to go back to um, Aristotle um, and read Aristotle in our spare time. Um, and Aristotle has this hugely important point to make, um, and that is, if you don't want to be governed by a boss, for Aristotle that was a king or a tyrant, um, then what you need is what he called civic friendship. Um, that is, you have to treat your fellow citizens um, uh, as friends rather than enemies. Now, Aristotle didn't mean by that that you have to be friends in the sense of wanting to go out and have a beer with or hang out with um, uh, your fellow citizens. You don't even have to like them. That's not the point. The point is you cannot be treating your fellow citizens as enemies. You must be treating them as people who are part of a shared enterprise. Um, and that's what makes bargaining possible. Um, when you say that, um, yes, we have different, you know, points of view. Yes, we have different interests. We're trying to get the best bargain we can for ourselves, but we're bargaining with people who are ultimately part of the same enterprise that we are, um, who are, in that sense, our civic friends rather than our civic enemies. And the language of enmity, um, of victory over en enemies, when that begins to become the dominant language um, of politics, democracy becomes really difficult. And that's something um, I've been very concerned about. Um, and I think uh, we as a uh, as a country ought to be concerned about, because without some conception of civic friendship, bargaining becomes ever more difficult, maybe impossible. Without bargaining, without a civic bargaining, uh, a bargain, we're not going to have a democracy. And of course, that that touches on that that other essential condition, which is essentially compromise. I mean, part of this, you know, uh, demonizing of your opponents is compromise and surrender. Compromise, you know, is for wimps. Uh, and you know, it's not to say that one must compromise on everything, 
But the willingness to compromise and on things where they're very contentious and very difficult for which there is no easy answer, uh, you have to have a good faith compromise uh, intent, at least on the table. And and again, I, I always look upon this as kind of both the short term and the long term. The short term, when you're trying to solve something like the budget deal back in June, you had to be willing to compromise or we're going to lose our credit rating. A lot of financial you know, damage would have been done, um, not to mention our spending and so on. On the other hand, uh, in order to preserve and keep the door open, you have to leave those bargaining tables and not say, well, I'm never doing that again because I hate these people. You have to say, look, you know, I don't always agree with them, but we created some value by doing this. Um, let's keep the door open for the future because you know what? Our spending is still out of control. You know what? We're still going to have to worry about our credit rating and and so on and so forth. So I think this notion of both compromise and maintaining, uh, you know, a future-oriented level of dignified exchange and engagement uh through a sort of an attitude of, of civic uh friendship is 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 really really uh critical and i think that like you say that that has been lost because of our media environment social media where you know if you want to get a lot of readers and followers you know come up with the most outrageous insults possible um and we're in this kind of circus of outrageous insult uh war that is leaving more and more people cold, but is dominating our airwaves. And we have to be able to look beyond and and, and, and be better than that. Yeah, and uh, that really brings us to, I think in some ways, um, our takeaway in terms of, well, how do we preserve democracy? How does democracy survive? What, what do we need to do next um, uh, uh, in order to ensure that survival rather than um, collapse um, uh, is the outcome? And that really comes down to the education of citizens, um, that uh, education that can be in part um, in our schools, in our universities, but it's also got to be um, education of one another um, in our daily life, um, in our interchange with uh, one another. So the um, commitment to uh, uh, citizens educating citizens is something that goes way back in American history. We see it in Athens. We see it in Rome. We see it in the UK. Um, that uh, the need to um, uh, work at um, mutual education in order to build the kind of basis for civic friendship in order to create them um, uh, the conditions for bargaining that maintain um, uh, security and welfare that allow our institutions to be both flexible um, uh, and uh, reliable um, without mutual education, um, without thinking through what it really takes um, to be a citizen. Uh, what are the duties? Um, if we can't educate the next generation um, uh, into what uh, really requires um, to have a democracy, uh, then survival is going to be in, 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 in question. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's interesting, I, again, as an organizational guy from way back, I think about this in terms of, of transformation and change. And and I think what is taken for granted uh, often in our political debates today is that um, 
our democracy is uh, a moving target. Um, the world is not standing still. We have a bunch of enemies that are gunning for us uh, today that uh, we didn't have to worry about around the year 2000. Uh, there's several out there now. We also uh, have more and more citizens, both people coming in wanting to be citizens, but you know, just natural birth and growth and our economic prosperity has has essentially increased our size. And you know, this point about the collective uh, action in scale, which we mentioned before, is 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 right in front of us. And I think most people. Uh, who are, argue about fixing democracy don't realize that. We are getting bigger. We are getting more complex. Uh, we are getting multi, more multicultural, like it or not. Um, and we're going to have to keep reinventing what democracy means. Now, that may mean reinventing some of our institutions. It may mean reinventing uh, certain processes, adapting our laws. I mean, our founders included uh, adding amendments to the Constitution. They were wise. They didn't realize that it was going to be all finished as soon as they walked out of Philadelphia Hall. But so much of our rhetoric today is sort of solving the current problem and not looking ahead down the road of what are the problems we're going to have to solve in five years, in 10 years? To what degree does our democracy do what we need to, to, to be ready for, you know, that 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 next that next uh that next generation? Um, you know, the famous hockey player said, you know, I, uh, Gordy, um, what's the guy's name? But uh, he said, you have to skate to where the, the puck is going, not to where it is. But we have to skate to where the puck is going, right? So uh, at the end of the day, the way to get ready is to build the right mindset, to create an agility. Um, the institutions can be invented later. The technologies can be applied uh, the laws can be modified. But if you don't have people thinking about the problem the right way around these kinds of fundamentals that we've laid out in, a, in, in our bargain, all the innovation of technology or whatever else you want to use is useless because if people don't understand what you have to do to not have a king, it doesn't matter if you have new technology. If they don't understand that you've got to clarify who's a citizen, who's not, maybe expand it, but it has to be clear and so on and so forth. So I think that the civic education mandate is as much about building agility in terms of mindset and attitude for the future as it is anything else. Yeah, uh, and really it is building, isn't it, Brooke? I mean, um, building means um, engaging in the work of educating ourselves, um, understanding what democracy is, understanding the conditions that are required uh, for democracy, understanding the um, relationship between um, uh, rights uh, and duties, uh, uh, understanding why scale um, and diversity um, are both an opportunity um, to greatness, um, uh, but also a real challenge that has to be addressed um, uh, through uh, recognition um, uh, of the kind of trade-offs that inevitably are required by negotiation. So um, I tend to think of our book as, in fact, um, uh, an attempt to educate. We educated ourselves in researching it, um, uh, an attempt to call for um, uh, the people of 
the United States and indeed of other democratic countries um, uh, to recommit um, to uh, the kind of hard work of uh, thinking about uh, the future, um, thinking about what it's going to take, um, uh, but thinking about the future and what it's going to take by returning to the fundamentals um, that history uh, uh, teaches us. You know, and and particularly uh, focusing again on on not just the need for education, but that education has to get down to, as you say, the fundamentals that that whatever form civic education is going to take, you've got to come face to face with the human pragmatism of what democracy is. That if you don't want a boss, you have to learn to negotiate. You have to learn how to, uh, you know, deal with your fellow citizens the right way. Um, you have to be ready to, uh, you know, make changes about definitions of citizenship and so on. So it's not that that's the totality of, of civic education that's needed, but uh, we need to educate people about the need for education and also what are some of the contours, again, of the fund- fundamentals that might guide a next generation of, of civic education. No, absolutely. Exactly so. Um, Well, that is what we're hoping to do um, in our book. Um, uh, And I want to thank the audience today for uh, joining us. Um, You can find uh, our book, The Civic Bargain, How Democracy Survives, um, on Amazon.com or other um, online and real-world venues. Um, uh, Once again, um, our thanks, and thanks, Brooke, uh, uh, for joining us. Thanks to the uh, Hoover Institution for sponsoring this discussion, and Josh for uh, being my friend and co-author in this this, uh, challenge. 